Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're going to talk a little bit today about direct indexing, which I think is one of the real trends that's going to be happening in the future of wealth management. It involves investment implementation, and it deals with the benefits of indexing, yet it allows customizable solutions around client objectives. This can include things like tax attributes, ESG investing, and other personal preferences like concentrated positions. To that end, we have a special treat today. Lisa Goldberg, who is the head of research at Aperio, is going to be joining us. For those who don't know, Aperio manages around $41 billion in assets. They were recently acquired by BlackRock, which is exciting. She's a PhD in math from Brandeis, and she began her career as a math professor. I'm also bound to say we're not going to be talking about any financial advice or any recommendations, so let that be your disclosure for anybody who is interested in that. We're going to be talking about the concept of direct investing and direct indexing and why that might be interesting for different clients here and there. Lisa, welcome aboard. Hi, Frazier. Before we get into it a little bit, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into certainly the math space and then how did that translate into an investing career? Well, I've been a mathematician always. It just seemed to be something I was interested in when I was very small and I continued being interested in it as I grew up through school and through professional life. As you mentioned, I started as a math professor And I would say the most salient, distinguishing thing about my career is that I span academic, mathematics, and industry in financial economics. So I'm on the faculty of UC Berkeley right now. I'm in the economics department. We have a little research group called the Consortium for Data Analytics and Risk, which is very exciting. Work on some financial problems. And then, of course, this dovetails very nicely with all the fantastically interesting client-oriented problems that we deal with at a period group. So I went into a little discourse about what I thought direct indexing was like as a concept. How do you think about it? Did I miss anything? Is there a definition that was useful for listeners? Well, direct indexing, as you said, is holding a portfolio of stocks in an index that to some extent tracks the index. Now, why would I want to do that when I could have, say, an ETF or a fund? And I think, again, coming back to your introduction, the key word here is customization. When you hold the stocks that you want, you can, on one hand, try and stay as close to the index as you can get while implementing your views. Those views can be representative of what you care about writ large. The thing that makes it different, this isn't a new concept necessarily, but it's something that I think that the computing power and algorithms, et cetera, that help people design these types of products and capabilities for the investor. The part that's new is that it seems to me that that customization has really come to the fore as something that's important for the client. How have you seen how investments have been implemented in the past and what's the leap forward now? Well, the idea of indexing goes back quite a long while, and there have been lots of ways to go at it. So I mentioned ETFs and funds. Early on, an important question in research would be, how well can I track an index with a relatively small number of stocks? Why? Because trading was very expensive. So there was a real incentive on one hand to stay with the index, on the other hand, for the fund to not do any excess trading, hold more securities than it needed to. As trading fees have come down, 
That's an important key. And as you mentioned, technology, algorithms, data availability. Now anyone can hold lots and lots of stocks. So I could hold, say, 350 stocks in the S&P 500 very easily. And now with those weights set up to minimize tracking error, stay close to the index and can personalize that portfolio according to how I see fit rather than how a fund manager with the views of many, many individuals, not just me, sees fit. So when you're putting together a fund or a system for a client, how does that process work? What are you doing for them? And how do you sample the available stocks so that you get that, as we call it, the beta of one of the particular index that you're trying to track, and at the same time, do it in a way that it doesn't create distortions that could cause problems later? Right. So at Aperio, we manage at the moment more than 7,000 individual portfolios, all very quantitative, tracking S&P, that's the example we've used, but also many, many other indexes, global indexes, custom indexes, you name it. We have lots of different benchmarks and our methods are all quantitative. So what we'll do is listen to the client. The client has a certain set of intents, could be gathering tax alpha, could be avoiding oil producers or whatever that client wants. We will implement quantitatively that client intent while minimizing tracking error to the benchmark. All algorithmic, all optimization driven, and we use quite a number of what are called factor models, which are the source of our estimates of risk of tracking error. So for people who are uninitiated with the concept, getting your arms around tracking an index versus outperforming it can sometimes be a little bit tricky. You mentioned a term that I think is really one of the things that's going to be important going forward, and that's tax alpha. One of the ways we can help people outperform is by meeting their benchmark returns in a way that's extremely tax efficient. How do you do that within the framework of the day-to-day operations of the portfolio? So that's a great question. And it has some really fundamental assumptions embedded in our our way of doing it has some really fundamental assumptions. So tax alpha, let's say what that is, that's after tax return, a component of after tax return that we deliver to clients. How do we deliver that? Well, let's suppose you're my client and you have a hedge fund and that hedge fund has a capital gain. You would lose some of that gain if you've realized it to pay in taxes. But I, as a direct indexer, can do a remarkable thing. I can deliberately sell stocks in my direct indexing portfolio that have lost money, losers, replace them with close cousins, substitutes, thereby keeping the portfolio close to the index, and deliver those losses to you to offset the gain in your hedge fund so you don't pay tax on that. And the money that you've saved, that's tax alpha. So I just want to say, to think about that, we can't deliver tax alpha to someone who doesn't have gains in a portfolio. Right. Losses don't work unless you have something to offset. Well, it's a surprisingly common misunderstanding. I mean, the numbers look great. Taxable investing has so many embedded assumptions, and that's probably the most important one to keep in mind, is that this type of tax alpha delivery works only for clients who have 
external gains that require offsetting. So in terms of guiding this around, everyone's tax situation is going to be a little bit different. Do you interface with the client and understand what their gain situation is so that you know ahead of time either how much to dial up or down the sales component of what you're doing? Or is it a little bit more standardized in terms of the losses you're trying to generate? Well, when you're doing 7,000 portfolios, not all 7,000 of those clients are equally forthcoming or wanting to tell us. We interface with clients in detail to the degree that, that they'll allow us to. And of course, the more we know about a client situation, the better we can do for that client. So we do have some standardized sorts of ways of going at loss harvesting and other types of investing for clients who are not interested in getting into the details. And for those clients who do have very detailed and specific situations, of course, we can dial up the customization to serve their needs. So one of the things we talked about before we came on the air a little bit, uh, it's one of my theories that this direct indexing tool is going to help the RIA advisor do even better by the client, that the financial planning and that the work they do to try to help clients understand their after-tax situation, many times I think doesn't quite get implemented very well with the current basket of tools from an investment implementation standpoint. How do you see that concept and how do you work with RIAs in particular to give them the tools that they need to interact with the clients if you're not talking to them directly? So a little bit more about how Aperio works. We mainly work with RIAs. So when I said we had 7,000 portfolios, I'll call them our 7,000 end portfolios. Each of those end clients works with an RIA who is an Imperial direct client. So we're working with RIAs all the time. And sometimes uh, we'll get brought into conversations with the so-called end clients. Other times, hopefully our ideas get translated indirectly, if not directly. But I totally agree with you that having direct indexing as a tool is great for RIAs because it allows them to serve the needs of their clients in a way that you can't do with pooled commingle investments that don't take up the specific needs. We're all individuals, right? We all have preferences. Within the context of those portfolios, something that I have trouble getting my head around oftentimes is once you've sold the losses and you created a pool of losses that can be used elsewhere, the portfolio has to get back to that beta of one around the index and that, that it matches the benchmark allocation in some way, shape or form. Are there times where there are mismatches or issues getting back to that beta of one, or are there so many stocks within the different indices that that's not really a problem? So of course that varies partly depending on client and partly depending on market conditions, but the basic elements of good delivery of this tax alpha we're talking about rely on substitutability. U.S. and global public equity markets are very rich. So when we sell these losers, we have over a long history been well able to substitute those losers with stocks that bring the beta back into line, allow us to continue to track the index. So that's been the case so far. Uh, of course, situations could change when there's a lot of polarization in markets or when a client comes to us with a few legacy positions, concentrated positions, and there's a big tax cost into getting out into a diversified portfolio, that can make it more difficult as well. So it depends on individuals. 
depends on the market. So one of the scenarios we were talking about before, too, were clients that have those concentrated positions. Maybe they're an executive at Google. Maybe they inherited a big position in Exxon that has a very low tax basis to it. And so that's something that the RIA has to deal with a little bit. But that's something that direct indexing can deal with as well. You're able to take in that preference saying, you know, I don't necessarily want to double up on a position for the sake of getting back to the index weight. You're able to exclude that position when you're doing something for a client. Of course, we can take a holistic approach to the client's general situation and not just to a specific piece of it that we have under our control, as you say. But often in the case of a concentrated position, you might want to go beyond just excluding it. Clients sometimes want to take that concentrated position and start to diversify it. And once again, this is the sort of thing that a direct indexing shop can help do. We can't work miracles. We can't make the tax consequences go away. We can look at trade-offs between transitioning out of a concentrated position in a more timely fashion, which tends to be a little more costly, or we can go more slowly and lower the tax cost to some degree. So that's a problem that we work on all the time with clients. So in your toolkit, do you use things like options? Does it get that complicated where you're able to work around particular positions, or do you do that within the context of your portfolios, or do you keep it as simple as possible? At Aperio, we have not used options today. We're always looking at new ideas. We're also looking at moment, a big research project for us is accelerating just this type of diversification with long, short portfolios. But that's still very much in the research stage. We haven't rolled anything like that out to clients yet. Under construction and something that you want to make sure if you do something like that, that it's correct and it's scalable and everything along those lines. We also like to make sure that it's long-term smart. So a lot of what we've talked about here is client intent versus risk in a single period. But one of the things we like to do at Aperio is take a long-term perspective. How does the series of decisions rebalancing every month or quarter over a 10-year period look? One of the factors we really consider is long horizons. And we've built tools that allow us to look at how our strategies play out over long horizons. So we talked a little bit about the interface with the RIAs and how that works for the clients and the intersection with the clients. When you're getting in and analyzing with the client what they're up to, what is a sort of a horror story you've looked at and maybe in terms of complexity or maybe something where the client doesn't quite understand what you're doing? And how do you get around that if you can? A horror story. Wow. Well, I would say one of the most difficult things for us is the inherent complexity of the type of investing that we're doing. We get asked all the time, how much tax alpha can you deliver? Or how closely can you track this index? Or some question like that. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the future is going to bring. We rely on history. We rely on estimates. We try and take the broadest perspective. So I would say the biggest challenge for us is trying to make all of the complexity of individual investing as transparent as possible without boring people to death or mulling them over with too many technical details. <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of a balancing act. We strive for transparency and we strive for clarity. And communication, as you, a podcast moderator, knows is the hardest thing. It's an important component. And I've seen people who've had portfolios that come into my world and I analyze them. I'm not, I always 
sort of <laughs> ask the question, how did we get here? And how are we going to try to get out of here or move to something a little bit different? To that end, and we're not trying to make projections and guesses here, but how much tax alpha do you think people really are leaving on the table? Is it something where people generally understand the concept, but they're not implementing it? What do you think some people can really see as a benefit from that? Maybe even numerically, if you're willing to put that out there. Well, we are willing to make some numerical estimates, especially as long as we're allowed to list at least some of the numerous assumptions that led to them. But with tax, it's really complicated. I'll direct maybe some of your listeners who might be interested to Aperio blog. There's an old Aperio blog that Patrick Geddes, one of our founders, wrote a few years back about insult to injury. And this talks about a mutual fund that lost money in a year, but then also handed its clients a tax bill on the, the trading it did. Okay, so that, that's a real nightmare scenario. Of course, that, that's extreme. There are taxed efficient ways that clients can avoid that even without direct indexing. But for a very high net worth uh, investor, top tax bracket, long-term, say, 10-year horizon, we like to think that the range of tax alpha we can provide in direct indexing is somewhere between, say, 50 basis points per year and a couple of percent per year. And one of the features of our research is that we always give ranges like that. When we test our strategy, we look back in history, but we look over many, many historical periods of the horizon we're interested in. So we do get a range of outcomes, hopefully setting expectations that are not overly precise, which inevitably would lead to disappointment, right? If I tell you you're going to get 1.6% and then you don't, well, that's a problem. But we, we see a big range Tax alpha is easier to generate when markets are turbulent. So if you happen to be investing over a turbulent period, and we've seen quite a few in the past couple decades, well, then there's more tax alpha. Well, and I think the thing too is, uh, I've, I hearken on this a lot, it's after tax, after fee, after inflation. And if you're able to add something on a compounding basis after tax, that just adds to your long-term ability to add and compound your portfolio over time. Absolutely. It's, it's compounding is, is magical and I think uh, often underappreciated. But once again, it's important to realize that this particular thing works only if they're outside gains, which is not something that everybody has. Direct indexing, on the other hand, can be for really any kind of client, someone with personal views about what to invest in, someone who wants to be an activist, a shareholder activist, or someone who just believes that for whatever reason, high yield security is going to outperform the market, can tilt toward those. So direct indexing is great for tax but it's great for all kinds of personalization. At what levels does it make sense to really investigate this? I imagine a $5,000 portfolio, it may be tough to have enough buys and sells in order to have it make sense. But what asset levels do you see this being particularly effective? Well, this is a question we've been looking at lately as we've been working more with our new colleagues at BlackRock. So Aperio has traditionally served ultra high net worth community and also lots of mission-driven foundations who have a real need to exclude or tilt or otherwise have their investments reflect their values. We are looking at going to a broader class of individuals going to lower than ultra-high net worth. And there, there are some interesting issues. The same one I keep bringing up again, 
are there enough gains to make it work? On one hand, there's a lower tax bracket, lowers the value. If there's not gains, it can lower the value of what we offer. So all of those questions are going to come in to refine estimates that we'll be able to make for different types of clients. And of course, there's also the potential for upcoming changes in the tax law, which could change anything at any time and even retroactively. So we're definitely on the lookout for that. Yes. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm going to put in the show notes a bunch of different links, like to the Aperio blog you mentioned before, and some other collateral. What is the best way for people who are listening to this to find out more about what you're doing and to access what Aperio is doing? Well, of course, I invite everybody listening to this podcast to visit our website. Our research is up. We post everything we can. The blog is less technical than some of our research papers, but hopefully the research papers are, are transparent, especially for investment professionals. That's a great way to start. Come to the Aperio website, check out our collateral. We do not really have much by way of secret sauce. We try and be as clear and as forthcoming about our understanding of the kind of investing we do as we possibly can. Perfect. And as we wind up here, it's now about 60 degrees out. And after a year of COVID, I'm ready to get outside and do other things. What do you like to do in your spare time? Well, I'm in California. So we've been outside all through COVID and it has been fantastic. I do a lot of sports and I think probably my main sport is swimming. I don't know if everyone in the world knows this, but we swim outdoors here in California all year round, even when it's snowing pools are warm. We get wetsuits and go in the bay. And sports have kept me really on track through this year of lockdown and hope others have found similarly great outlets. Terrific. Lisa, thank you for coming on. It's great to hear about this new way of implementing investments and continued success and double continued success with the merger. Well, thanks very much, Fraser. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to join you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.